Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. He konai purangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Hi, Stephen Price here. Just a warning, this podcast contains violence and quite a bit of bad language, so take care of yourself while you're listening. It's a crisp and still morning in Pitangi. Tracy Morehouse is a beekeeper, and she's working near the Pitangi track. Then she hears something that startles her. I heard something which I thought, or I think, was a man's voice yelling for help and hey. A man's voice yelling for help, and then yelling, hey, where's it coming from? The sound was definitely coming across from D, which was across the Pitangi stream, up the top of the Pitangi track. That's Brett Hall's campsite. The date, Monday the 30th of May, 2011. Three days after Brett is supposed to have been killed by David Little. One day after David Little says he visited Brett and found him alive and well. And I saw a glint of um, something flashing, and um, which I thought might have been a reflection of a vehicle, or they had a, um, a digger up there. Tracy Morehouse stands still and listens for about five minutes. Later she calls out to see if anyone responds. Nothing. But she's so concerned she phones her parents, who, as it happens, live in the neighbouring property to Brett's, and suggests that someone should check on him. Let's state the obvious. If that's a man's voice coming from Brett's campsite, if it's, in fact, Brett's voice, then David Little didn't kill him on Friday. The Crown's case falls over. I'm Stephen Price, and this is Mr Little Meets Mr Big, the podcast about whether police can use a story to get to the truth about a murder. Is Tracy Morehouse's evidence what reasonable doubt looks like? all by itself. You follow the evidence. Oh, no, it looks bad, but yeah, well, I'm done, so. yeah. It's a cogent picture, isn't it? Pointing that way. It leads that way. Yeah. I'll tell you right now, I haven't done anything to break and I have not hit my body. I'll tell you it was. In the last episode, we heard evidence from the first part of David Little's murder trial. David was building a house for Brett up at Pitangi in craggy hunting country off the Whanganui River. Brett got mad because he thought David was overcharging him for materials and also spending some of the money for materials on himself. But there were signs that things were back on an even keel. Still, Brett was nervous about security and had a big drug deal coming up in the weekend. On the Saturday morning, his son Damien visited the campsite and found him gone, with the caravan door strangely left open and a gun bag on the floor... But when he found Brett's quad bike up on a hill by the bush, he figured he must have gone hunting. David says he visited Brett on Sunday and had a couple with him. The quad bike was down at the campsite, but the cover was off. He says Brett told him he was going hunting. Two days later, Brett's neighbour, John Thurlow, finds a possum still alive in a trap by Brett's campsite. 
it would be very odd for any trapper not to kill the possum immediately. He calls the police. The family gathers up at the campsite and is surprised to find four chairs out. Had people been visiting Brett? Except for the four chairs, Damien says the campsite looks the same as when he visited it four days earlier, with the caravan open, the gun bag on the floor, and the quad bike up by the bush. The police launch a massive search, but don't find any sign of Brett. An army tracker says the quad bike hadn't been moved for ten days. That would mean that David was wrong about the quad bike being at the campsite when he visited on the Sunday. Was he mistaken? Or lying? Now we'll hear more of the trial. And it starts with this possibly game-changing witness, Tracy Morehouse, and the cry for help she hears. Is it Brett? Maybe meeting his end in a drug execution? Could there be another explanation? Turns out, there could. So you think it was a man's voice. What was the other thing you thought it could have been? I th- it could have been a goat. Wait, what? A goat? She might have mixed up Brett Hall with a goat? Well, apparently the, the idea's not as silly as it sounds. Try this pop quiz. I'm going to play you three sounds. You work out which one is a goat. Here's the first one. The second. Here's number three. Okay, so that was a trick question. They're all goats. They can sound like people crying out. Two police officers involved in search and rescue told the court that over the years they'd heard cries for help that turned out to be goats. Even Tracy Morehouse's father figured it must have been a goat, which he said can sound like a man's voice. It's a tempting explanation. But Tracy Morehouse seemed like a very level-headed witness. She seemed sensible. Listen to some of the cross-examination. You hear uh, a man's voice calling for help. Yes. And it was a raised voice, like a yell? That's what it sounded like, yes. Yeah. And you heard it four times, didn't you? I heard help twice and then what I thought was hey twice. Yeah. All right. You were pretty sure you'd heard a male's voice, weren't you? I was concerned that yeah. it could have been, yes. Yeah. And that it was deeper than a goat. You being familiar with um, rural, rural areas and, and animals... Um, this is what you thought you heard, right? Something deeper than a goat, a man's voice, and that's what you told your mother. Yes. Yeah. Could have been a goat. Could have been a different man. But could have been Brett. Now we have to talk about what David Little was telling the police. Because some of it looks pretty dodgy. Let's start with his driving in the early hours of the Sunday morning. David lives in Halcom, a little town about 30 kilometres from Palmerston North. It's a short drive from his house to the petrol station at Bulls. About 15 minutes north of Bulls, upstate Highway 3, is the little town of Turakina. Just before you get there, there's a little rest area on the side of the road. If you keep going past the rest area and through Turakina, upstate Highway 3, you can get to Brett's place at Pitangi off the Whanganui River Road in less than an hour. You can also get to the sea and access a beach from several roads off State Highway 3 near Turakina. You just hang a left and head for the coast. You could go fishing if you liked. That's what David Little told police he was trying to do in the early hours of the Sunday morning before heading to Brett's to put some finishing touches on the house frame. He says he got up early, about 3.30am, stopped for petrol and bulls, then tried to get to a beach near Turakina to go fishing. 
He says he tried two roads just past Turakina, but the beach access at the end of both roads was blocked. At some point, he went back to the rest area near Turakina to wait for better light and opened a couple of cans of beer. Then he set off for Brett's place, getting there at about 8am. David's story is backed up by pictures from two different CCTV cameras. You can see him driving in his grey Nissan Tirano to buy petrol at Bulls at 4am. He gets $40 worth. Then you can see him driving back and forth past Turakina several times. There he is at 4.29am going north. And about half an hour later, heading back south, presumably having been frustrated by the first blocked access way. There he is going north again past Turakina just after 5am, consistent with looking for another way to the beach. And at 5.30am, he's driving back again, consistent with having hit another block. Now he's going south, and that's toward the rest area where he said he parked up waiting for daylight. Detective Brett Humphrey asked him whether he'd gone any further south than the rest area, perhaps back to Bulls? His prosecutor, Michelle Wilkinson-Smith, asking Detective Humphrey about that. Did he confirm that after he had been through Turakina and back again to the rest area just south of Turakina, that he did not go any further south of the rest area? That's right, he did. And was he adamant about that? Yes. Did you suggest that perhaps he was mistaken or might have forgotten about going further south of that rest area and um, trying to jog his memory at all? Yes, I did, yep. And did he then confirm that he went no further south? That's right. Finally, at 7.47am, we can see David driving back north to Turakina to buy some more petrol, $25 worth, and head off to Brett's. So David's little story is consistent with what the CCTV cameras show. Though perhaps we might pause for a minute to wonder why there's a two-hour gap here from when the CCTV at Turakina shows David heading south at 5.30am when he heads back north at 7.47am. It seems rather a long time to spend in a rest area having a few beers, especially since it's already light by 7.47am. David Little explained his movements several times to different police officers, even doing a ride-along to show them exactly where he travelled. In fact, David was generally extremely willing to talk to the police. He gave eight interviews. One of his statements, when written up, comes to 80 pages. He sat down for a videoed interview that lasted four hours. There's not a defence lawyer in the land who would recommend a suspect do this. One of the reasons for that is, you'll make mistakes, and it'll make you look guilty. And sure enough, he does. First he says he packed his bait on the Saturday night, then it's on the Sunday morning. He says he stopped at the rest area twice, and then it's just once. There are more discrepancies, but they're not very big ones. As David tells Detective Brett Humphrey in the video interview... Mm, as I've said right from the start, so I have not got a very good memory. David Little's a heavy drinker. There's no particular reason why he needed to carefully remember his movements that day. The CCTV cameras show he's got it largely right. But then comes a moment in the video interview that's not so easy to sweep aside. On the video of the police interview, we can see David Little and Detective Humphrey sitting opposite each other at a table. David sits on the left in a yellow top, jeans and a black beanie. Detective Humphrey's on the right. He leans forward and shows David a new CCTV photo. This is a photo taken in Bulls. This road is looking down High Street towards Scotts Ferry. So the CCTV camera is looking down a street that leads south from Bulls, eventually winding up in a little town called Scotts Ferry. And this is your, your, your truck. Oh, yeah. 
And then there it is there again in Bulls, heading on State Highway 3 towards Whanganui Turakina at 7.32. That's David's Tirano driving up towards Bulls from the south at 7.30am on the Sunday. Then he heads back up to Turakino for his second lot of petrol. We've already seen that. He gets there at 7.47am. But remember, police said David told them adamantly that he never went south of the Turakino rest area. But here he is, not just in Bulls, which is south of Turakino, but coming into Bulls from the south. What was he doing for those two hours? And is this a lapse in memory or a lie? I actually don't recall going there, but yeah, I must have. Well, you did, David. Just trying to work out why. I think you know why. I'm telling you right now, I haven't done anything for Brett and I have not hidden a body. I'm telling you honestly. He hasn't hidden a body? Up to now, Detective Humphrey hasn't been talking about a body. He's been talking about David hiding guns. Why were you there then? Trying to get what I was doing. So I went back to that picnic area. Just going to drive. That's it. Must have been. But where to? So let's wind your mind back. Where did you go? Honestly, didn't go down to the beach or anything up there. I already didn't. Detective Humphrey points out that David didn't have to go to Scott's Ferry or the beach. There were plenty of side roads, and Santoff Forest was nearby. And it said, all I can think of was that when I was getting low on gas, and Terrakina wasn't open, so I've come all the way back here. Then it would have had me getting a second lot of petrol, which has it. No, you didn't get more petrol at Bulls. Yeah. And it's not just the journey, David, it's the length of time. We've got two hours that's gone missing that you can't give me a reasonable explanation for. You haven't given me any explanation. I'm actually trying to find out what I actually done exactly to be able to give you one. Detective Humphrey points out that David has given detailed descriptions of other things he did that morning. The beach access, the rest area, meeting Brett. Why not those two hours? And why did he need more petrol anyway if he spent most of the time parked up at a rest area? What happened in those missing two hours? A few days after the interview, David comes up with an explanation. He was four-wheel driving south of the Rangatike River. And it's possible for him to have driven back south of the river for those two hours, consistent with all the CCTV footage. Well, it's a pretty circuitous route. But could he really have forgotten about this during his interviews with the police? And it's an admission, anyway, that he was on the other side of the Rangatika River that morning. And as we'll see later, that's where he told Mr Big he buried part of Brett Hall's body. It gets worse for David Little. Remember the guns that he told the police about? The .22 and the .223 that he said Brett kept by the long drop up at Pitangi? He said they were probably hot, but he didn't know where they'd come from. Turns out... David Little did know where they'd come from. He bought them himself. You tell us that when people went up there, that you and Brett made out that the firearms were yours. Pretty much, yeah. The firearms are yours. No, they're not. 
was Brit's money that paid for them. Yep. It may well have been. But you sourced them off. I sourced them for Brit, yeah. He paid for them, they were his. Does this matter? I don't know. It can't help that David Little started off lying about where they came from. But he didn't have a licence, and one of the guns was hot, so maybe it's not surprising he wasn't completely honest. There was mixed evidence about whether Brett really did keep guns up at Pitangi, but you've got to say, he's a drug dealer, likes hunting, out there on his own, worried about security, kept cash in buried buckets. It's surely plausible that he did. But if so, what happened to them? I worked my guns for starters, and I haven't got them stashed them anywhere. Well, I think you need to complain about what's happened, regardless of what it is. I'll tell you right now, I haven't done anything. I have not. And I mean it, eh? I haven't done anything. I know it looks bad, but yeah, I haven't done a thing. And here, it gets weird again. After the interview, Detective Humphrey visited David at his house in Halcombe with a warrant to search his car. He says David told him he was seeing his lawyer the next day and might say something about the firearms. I said, where are they? He said, I want to talk to my lawyer before I say anything about where they are. Is this exactly what he said? If so, it sure suggests he knew where the guns were. And remember from episode 3, during the Mr Big Sting, David said he could show Nick a .22 and a .223 hidden in two cemeteries. They didn't find them, but they did find ammunition, magazines and a silencer for a .22 and a .223. It doesn't necessarily mean that David Little used them to kill Brett, but it surely makes that more likely. Again, you can see the Crown's story coming together for the jury. David Little lies about guns that he might have used to shoot Brett, but he struggles to explain his odd driving in the early hours of Sunday when he might have been burying a body. But what about David's story? The drug deal gone wrong? We're about to learn much more about that. Let's start with those startling text messages that came to light during David's first trial, causing it to collapse. You might remember that Brett's son Damien got some text messages from a friend, they arrived out of the blue in late 2012, about 18 months after Brett had disappeared. That friend, Ben Payne, had some amazing news about Brett's disappearance. His defence lawyer, Christopher Stevenson, reading out the first text. Damien got news there was a witness to your dad's death. It's confirming he's gone. There was a poacher up there that day who knew the baddies. My mate. Phil with the silver 350Z knows the poacher who was there that day and saw the whole thing. He won't testify though because they know each other, etc. And he's too scared. Mob, I think, whoever they are. Phil's too scared to tell me who they are, but he knows their names. There was more than one. They bum-rushed your dad and killed him. Drug deal gone wrong, Phil thinks. He wouldn't say much but watch this space oh the body was taken away I knew that much and they have European sounding names but they are bad who you don't fuck with you may be in danger now too I'm trying to find out for you these guys are scary fuckers with bad reps cops must know something 
Phil said if he knows, it's just a matter of time before the rest of the world finds out the story. Didn't want to upset you, but thought you would want to know. I believe Phil about this too. So this is Ben telling Damien that Brett was killed in a drug deal gone wrong. That's exactly the defence theory. Damien took the texts to Detective Sergeant Gleeson at the Whanganui Police. At this point, Detective Sergeant Gleeson was in charge of the Brett Hall investigation, though the file had really gone cold. We met Detective Sergeant Gleeson in a couple of earlier episodes. He was the one who'd initially failed to turn over key pieces of evidence to the defence. Anyway, back in 2012, Detective Sergeant Gleeson decided to talk to these potential witnesses. We're going to jump out of the trial for a minute now and head back to a court hearing six months earlier, when there was no jury. Here's Detective Sergeant Gleeson telling the court about what Ben Payne told him about those text messages. Um, my friend told me things he's too scared to talk. My friend spoke to a person who was hunting up there. He saw what happened. There was a group of them. It was a drug deal that went wrong. There were drugs up there buried. Uh, they wanted it. Uh, they bum-rushed him and killed him. The hunter knew the people who did it. The people who did it threatened him. He's shit-scared, he won't talk. So that pretty much repeats what Ben said in the texts. Now, there's one interesting addition. Ben's now talking about drugs buried up on the property. We know that's true. But how did Ben know? So what did Ben's mate Phil have to say? Detective Sergeant Gleeson said Phil seemed embarrassed and wouldn't make eye contact. He didn't want to talk. But to a degree, he confirmed that Yes, he had heard the hunter, Jesse Dunganui Rogers, say what Ben reported in his texts. The judge, Simon France, pressed Detective Sergeant Gleeson on this. And you went and saw Phil and he confirmed it, that that's what he'd heard from Jess? Yes. So at the time you went to see Jess, you heard from Phil firsthand that that is what he heard? Correct. So what about Jesse? Detective Sergeant Gleeson saw him in his driveway, so stopped and asked him if he'd seen an assault while out hunting. And what was his reaction? He denied that bluntly. He said, nope. Jesse told him he'd already talked to the police. He'd come forward and told police about a four-wheel drive he saw up at the Pitangi track as he was driving past on the Sunday. We're going to come back to that. But it's not about seeing a murder. And it's not about hunting near the Pitangi track. Jesse said he was hunting that day on his family's land, 30 or 40 k up the river, before driving home to Whanganui past the Pitangi track. He didn't see anyone getting killed. Detective Sergeant Gleeson said it didn't seem that Jesse was scared of anything. After all, he'd already talked to the police. And Detective Sergeant Gleeson didn't find Ben or Phil very convincing. But as the judge pointed out, it might have been a good idea to ask Jesse the hunter about what Damien's friends, Ben and Phil, had said that he said. It just like strikes me that that is an inadequate investigation of this. And, and I'm still not clear what the theory underlying doing, doing nothing on it is. Is it just that, what, Phil just made this up? Detective Sergeant Gleeson figured it was just uninformed gossip at a party. And that's where things stood at the end of that hearing. But now we were going to hear from Ben, Phil and Jesse in person at David's trial. We're back in Wellington's courtroom number one at David Little's trial in 2019. Ben's up first. He's the one who sent the text messages to Brett's son, Damien. Remember, those messages talked about what Phil told him. And what Phil told him was what Phil had heard from Jesse the Hunter at a party. 
those texts were pretty specific. Jesse saw Brett being bum-rushed by mob members, a drug deal gone wrong, the body taken away, European names. Phil and Jesse too scared to talk. Ben gives evidence by video link. He's a bear of a man with long straggly hair and a beard. He's quite sick. He's been in hospital twice last week and said three days ago he had a constant fever that was making him delirious. He's asked how he is now, and the answer is not entirely reassuring. Yeah, 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 yeah. I've been in and out a little bit. But I'm, I'm here. I'm here. I'm right here, man. So what did he remember about the texts? Not much. I don't remember sending it now, but by the sounds of it, it's, it, it came for me. Maybe, yeah, probably, yeah. So was it true? It was completely and utterly from the mind of somebody who had smoked too much weed and was just, just sticking their nose into something that had nothing to do with them, basically. Couldn't really remember telling Detective Sergeant Gleason that it was true. Did he even remember getting the information from Phil Geary? No. I can't remember, so I don't know. And yes. Um, just there. He came to visit me one afternoon. Told me that his friend was up there hunting or something along those lines. May have heard of seen something. Got me a little bit excited, you know, and I thought made something out of nothing, really. All right. When you say um, heard or seen, what was it? Oh, nothing. He didn't tell me. He wouldn't tell me. He's sort of said, you know, it was probably something to do with his mate who'd been up there hunting, but he didn't want to say. So where did all that stuff come from about the mob bum-rushing Brett in the forest and a drug deal gone wrong? I'm at a loss to explain some of the crap in in there. Because it is crap. And? I guess it was just banter between mates and theorising between mates. It's like, you know, Batman and Robin get together, what do you think happened? And? That's the truth. I made it up, I really did. I'm an idiot. That's what you wanted to hear, that's the truth. I'm an idiot. I'm sorry, Damien. I'm sorry, Phil. (laughs) The defence asked him if maybe he was afraid to give evidence. He denied it. Mate, I'm going to stand up, okay? I'm going to show you something. No, it's fine. No. Um, no, I'm six foot four, 300 pounds. I am not scared of a man that walks this earth. Not one. Next up is Phil Geary. He's older, has head shaved, and has sunken eyes and a mellifluous voice. He said it was true he'd been at a party and true that he'd heard Jesse discussing a hunting accident. The rest, fake news. But he does say he was up the river hunting and he heard gunshots. I do remember that, but it was a hunting story. Absolutely nothing to do with murder. And I think, to be honest, it was about poachers or pot growers up the Wanganui River. 
Mm. He says Ben made up the rest. And then he came up with these different stories about what happened. And I said, stop, Ben, stop. Don't get into this. Because he was hell-bent to give the family closure because he knew Damien. Phil said he remembered talking to Detective Sergeant Gleeson later on, but doesn't remember being asked about Ben's texts. wanted to know... Uh, just generally, if I knew anything about the missing Mr. Hall, just if I'd seen anything, knew anything. And that's when I told him about Jess's convers- conversation at the party. But this doesn't make any sense. If Detective Sergeant Gleeson was asking Phil a general question about what he knew about Mr. Hall going missing, why did Phil bring up what Jesse said? he just told the court that what Jesse said had nothing to do with Brett or any murder. Anyway, the prosecutor stopped him and moved on to some other questions. She also tried to hit off the defence suggestion that someone was heavying him. It was suggested to you, I think, by my friend, that you might be scared to tell the truth about this. Not at all. I'm a martial artist. Why would I be scared? Finally, it was Jesse Ranganui Rogers' turn. Jesse is a tall, solid Māori guy in his 20s or 30s. His evidence was very straightforward. How far, or where is where there are you go hunting in, in relation to the Pitangi track? Uh, about 30k's, 40k's away, yeah. About 30 or 40k's away. Long way The day, the 29th of um, May 2011, were you hunting anywhere near the Pitangi track? Nope. At any stage when you were hunting or in that area, did you see any violence to anyone while you were up there? No, no, no. Have you ever told Phil Geary or your dad that you saw a murder up there? No, no. If Ben blamed himself, and Phil blamed Ben, Jesse was blaming Phil. Do you know where that suggestion came from? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, Phil. Phil? Yeah. I said that I'd seen a fellow opening the gate there, and then, yeah, they blew it out of proportion. I think he was a bit intoxicated. What on earth can we make of all this? Your guess is as good as mine. For me, I was left with two very strong impressions. The first is that there's more to this than we're being told. The evidence in court just seemed too far away from the seriousness and detail in Ben's texts. The memory's too oddly cloudy and inconsistent with what Detective Sergeant Gleeson said they told him. It reminded me that in court we only get a tiny window on the stories of people like Ben and Phil and Jesse. We have no real way to judge what's going on in their minds and lives and how that might affect what they're saying. All we really knew was that none of them wanted to be there. My second impression was that it's hard to come away with any real belief that Jesse saw Brett killed in the woods. It feels much more like information getting lost in translation than a conspiracy of silence. You can't completely rule out some sort of skullduggery somewhere here, but really, it's not enough to create a reasonable doubt. If the evidence of Ben, Phil and Jesse was a shipwreck for the defence, there was at least one plank that could be salvaged. Remember Detective Sergeant Gleeson said Jesse the Hunter had come forward to the police? I said that I'd seen a fellow opening the gate there and then, yeah, they blew it out of proportion. The gate was at the bottom of the Pitangi track. Remember, Jesse had been hunting 30 or 40 kilometres up the road and was driving back to Whanganui, which takes him back past Pitangi. The time was late afternoon on Sunday, May 29th. That's the day David Little visited in the morning and says he last saw Brett. The fellow Jesse saw had a red four-wheel drive and had a load of manuka. What did he look like? Uh, yeah, pretty stocky build. Had a ginger beard. 
brown t-shirt, black shorts. Jesse says he was quite tall and looked part Māori. Doesn't sound like Brett. Though Brett did have a red Hilux and wore black shorts. Could it be someone visiting for the drug deal that Brett told Damien was coming up? The one that involved cannabis called AK-47? Jesse wasn't the only one to see vehicles up at the Pitangi track that Sunday. A couple of hours later, a man driving past saw a white ute heading down the Pitangi track with a tarp covering the truck bed. The driver turned onto the road and, according to the witness, headed towards Whanganui, going like the clappers. I can't name the witness, his name's been suppressed, but he recognised the ute. It belonged to the man I've been calling Mr Salmon. Mr Salmon was the drug dealer upriver who Brett was supposed to be getting his AK-47 from in the deal he discussed with Damien. Were there drugs in the back of that ute? Or maybe a body? There's one other person who saw vehicles on the track that day, though this was much earlier. A woman, whose name's also been suppressed, said she was driving past the track sometime around 10am that Sunday morning. She saw two utes there, a red one and a white one, parked facing up the track. She also saw two men with the utes, and one wore shorts and had a green long-sleeved top and black gumboots and a knife in a pouch. Brett used to wear clothes like that, and he had a knife pouch. Is it possible it was him? It's a pretty sketchy description. The witness had never met Brett, and she didn't recognise the men. But she did recognise the red ute. She'd seen it around a lot. It belonged to the brother of Mr Salmon. Was this the drug deal rolling out? Or the beginning of something worse? Or were they just talking about firewood? Remember Brett's neighbour, John Thurlow? He sold firewood he kept at the bottom of the track. The witness said one of the men seemed to be gesturing toward the firewood. To complicate things a bit further, it's possible that David Little was still up at the campsite by then. Remember, he said he got up early, tried to go fishing, then drove up to Brett's to put some finishing touches on the house. David never said he saw these men, or that Brett went down the track to meet anyone. But it's also possible that David had just left. Three sightings of utes at the Pitangi track that day, two of them with links to the drug world. The police put out a public statement saying that if the drivers of those vehicles didn't come forward, they would be treated as suspicious. They didn't come forward. Was this a drug deal in the making? And if it was, did it lead to Brett's death? Or did it fall through because Brett was already dead? If those sightings are hints of drug activities that weekend, they're not the only ones. But before we get into the other evidence, it's time for a bit of a warning. This part gets a bit confusing. It doesn't all fit tidily together. So don't worry if you're not quite following it all. You don't need to. I've stuck a bit of a wiring diagram on the program's website at rnz.co.nz if you want to study how it supposedly all fits together. And, as we'll see, how some of it doesn't fit together. But you don't need to understand all the detail. The real question we need to ask is whether there's enough here to create a doubt as to how Brett was killed. So far, we've seen vehicles from local dealers on the Pitangi track, and we've heard Brett had a cannabis deal coming up that weekend. In fact, though, it seems a big meth deal was also going on that same weekend, involving Brett's mate Mr Pike and an Auckland drug dealer I'll call Mr Perch. Mr Perch is selling meth to Mr Pike and a gang associate of his. Now, meth is a whole different ballgame from cannabis. 
As the police admit, it's an extremely dangerous scene, and one that's led to a string of murders and disappearances in recent years. Defence lawyer Christopher Stevenson asks Detective Sergeant Gleeson about it. And there can be all sorts of reasons for violence and homicides, right? Um, there can be drug debts incurred, right? It could be one of the reasons. Yeah. Um, there can be standovers for money during a drug deal. Yes. Um, or there could just be some sort of uh, fallout which uh, might occur between um, people involved in uh, the drug dealing business if, for example, one's ripped off the other, right? It's possible, <laughs> yes. As we've seen, Brett himself was nearly shot a couple of times in earlier drug deals. We also know he was still taking a bit of meth shortly before he disappeared, and there was evidence that he was in a meth-dealing partnership with Mr Pike. Still, Brett's connection to this other deal that weekend between Mr Pike and the Auckland dealer Mr Perch is pretty hazy. Anyway, Mr Perch is sending texts to his girlfriend and his boss, and we can tell from those texts that Mr Perch is having trouble getting paid. We can also tell that something went badly wrong that weekend. Here he is, just after lunchtime on the Sunday. Here's defence lawyer Elizabeth Hall reading out some of Mr Perch's texts. Sorry. Am not okay. Sorry, am scared. Come back, bro, nutting out as everything went wrong. We're not hearing any of the responses to the texts. Maybe Mr Perch is receiving them on another phone. It's an old drug dealer's trick to make it harder to gather usable evidence. A few minutes later, Mr Perch texts again. Now nah, please, no fuck's sake, please. Then... Who I ring, stop it, please. Then shortly before 1pm... I will if can, don't think I get paid though, bro. Thinks I'm fucking with him. It's unreal, it unreal, okay? I'm not good. Please just let me get done what have to. By late afternoon, he's reporting... All good. It been ugly times. That's all I say. And then... Had someone steal two big ones last night. Recovered it now, only bit missing. Fuck all though, I don't have say anymore. As you know, it been ugly. Is all but all good now, just gotta move. So that's all on the Sunday. Mr Perch goes back to Auckland. Then a few days later travels back down to Manawatu to pick up some more money. That's roughly when Brett is discovered missing. Mr Perch has been texting Mr Pike and one of his associates, chasing money. So, to recap, we have an Auckland drug dealer coming down that weekend to do a meth deal with Mr Pike's crew. Something got ugly round midday Sunday, something got stolen. He's owed some money and comes back for it later in the week. What got ugly? Did Mr Pike have to come up with money in a hurry? If so, he might have known where to get it. A handwritten note in a little room in Whanganui's police station might give us a clue. It was a note that might never have seen the light of day without some dogged lawyering. After all the disclosure failures we talked about in episode 5, the defence lawyers didn't have much faith in the police's processes. So they were pretty suspicious when they came across entries in the list of documents that seemed vague. They sent their private investigator up to Whanganui to take a closer look at the bags and boxes of Brett's possessions the police had seized. What he found left Elizabeth Hall and Christopher Stevenson gobsmacked as they told me later. And he found it and photographed it and sent it to us. And um, it was horrifying, obviously. It was a handwritten letter to Brett. And it felt like the missing piece to the jigsaw puzzle that was Brett's last days. 
Elizabeth Hall read it to the jury at Wellington. Ah, yeah, mate. Sorry I can't be here today, but I had some work I had to arrange to do, but we'll be about tomorrow. Anyway, Brett, I've made a major fuck-up big time, and you're probably going to be pissed off and hate me, and I wouldn't blame you at all. It's from Mr Pike. What's he done? I used that money of yours, Brett, then didn't tell you the truth about it, when I know I should have. I don't really know what happened, really. I just lost control of what I was doing. He's stolen money from Brett. Lots of it, by the sound of things. Anyway, Brett, my intention is to get it all back to you by the end of February, and I intend to do this. It is my only priority. There is two grand here, and I will have another two tomorrow. I know it's just a start, but like I said, I will be sorting the rest between now and end Feb, if that's what you decide. I'm really gutted with myself, and I'm fucking sorry, mate. $4,000 is just a start. To give you some idea of the size of the debt, Mr Pike offers to pay Brett back in real estate. Now, we don't know when this was written, or if the money was ever paid back, though Brett's son Damien also talked of a drug debt Mr Pike owed Brett. Mr Pike never gave evidence at the trial, and he seems genuinely sorry in the letter, calling Brett one of his closest friends and asking forgiveness. But what if Mr Pike needed to go back to that particular well to pay off Mr Perch? What if he just took the opportunity of these drug deals to wipe his debt to Brett once and for all? That's speculation, but it's speculation that gets a boost from evidence from several police informants. Remember the Hamilton job sheet I told you about in the episode about police disclosure failures? The one that was emailed to Detective Sergeant Gleeson in 2014 containing a tip-off about Brett's death that didn't initially get turned over to the defence and that Detective Sergeant Gleeson said he'd never seen But it turned out that not only had he seen the job sheet, he'd used it to start some inquiries. Let's revisit what that job sheet said. When Brett bought the land, he buried buckets of drugs. Brett showed Mr Pike where the buckets were buried. At some point, Mr Pike uncovered the buckets, which had about $200,000 worth of drugs, and supplied Mr Mackerel with it. Mr Pike then could not pay Brett back what he'd taken and had several people clean up the job by getting rid of Brett. Is that the debt Mr Pike was talking about in his letter to Brett? And this, this Hamilton guy, the guy who made the tip-off, knew about the drugs Brett buried in buckets, which wasn't public information. And it was bang on about some other details about Brett too. Maybe the bit about Mr Pike getting people to get rid of Brett is right as well. The Hamilton job sheet also says... They took away the meth lab Brett had started. Now, police didn't find any physical evidence of a meth lab at Pitangi. But hold that thought, because one of Mr Pike's crew was also talking about killing Brett in connection with a meth lab. A police informant told them that a couple of months after Brett disappeared, Mr Pike's mate, Mr Marlin, has been spouting off that he's the offender for your victim up there. You might remember, this was the information in Detective Inspector Kirby's notebook that wasn't initially provided to the defence. The victim up there is Brett. It is payback for a rip-off for a clan lab The informant gave an address for this clan lab, that's a clandestine drugs lab often used for making meth. The address wasn't Pitangi. I don't know anything about the address, or what the payback is about, or how the clan lab fits in. But Mr Marlin does seem to have been boasting about killing Brett. And it looks like Mr Marlin said he was working with another member of Mr Pike's crew, Mr Trevally. There's more. 
another police informant said he'd talked to Mr Trevally a couple of weeks after Brett disappeared. He said Mr Trevally told him he and Mr Marlin were involved in Brett's death. And that's not the end of it. Yet another informant said he knew Mr Marlin was out at Pitangi just before the weekend Brett disappeared and that there was something just not right, that's the informant's words, about Mr Pike's crew about 10 days afterward. And the defence find out that Mr Pike turned off the CCTV at his home for two weeks starting on the Friday. So Mr Pike's mates, Mr Marlin and Mr Trevally, are both telling people they were involved in Brett's death. Where was Mr Trevally that weekend? He told police he was at his home for most of Sunday. But his girlfriend told police a different story. She said Mr Trevally left with Mr Marlin on Saturday afternoon. She didn't see him at home again till early Monday morning. She was texting Mr Marlin, where is he? On Sunday evening, Mr Marlin texted back. I'm supposed to have picked him up last night, He's, but ended up here, he's stuck in the wop-wops, waiting for me. He'll be pissed at me by now. When Mr Marlin says he ended up here, he's talking about jail. The police picked him up on Sunday morning and kept him there till Monday. Nothing to do with Brett. Now we don't know exactly when Brett was killed. But if Mr Marlin's in jail on Sunday and Monday, when David Little says he's meeting Brett at Pitangi, obviously he didn't kill Brett, even if he later spouted off about it. But Mr Marlin was working with Mr Trevally, and Mr Trevally might have. OK, let's take a step back and try to put all this together. Mr Pike owes Brett a lot of money. Mr Pike's mate, Mr Marlin, has been visiting Pitangi. Mr Pike turns off his CCTV cameras. Auckland meth dealer Mr Perch arrives and is chasing up payment for a meth deal. Utes linked to a cannabis dealer also visit Pitangi, maybe for another deal that weekend. Mr Perch gets scared. Something's stolen, things turn ugly. Mr Pike's mate Mr Trevally is in the wop-wops, probably Pitangi, but lies to police about where he is. Brett disappears. Mr Marlin and Mr Trevally reportedly boast about killing him. Someone who knows things about Brett tells police Mr Pike had Brett killed over a debt. Another police source says something just not right about Mr Pike's crew after that. You have these different sources of information sort of pointing all in the same direction and being fair and reasonable, right, and keeping an open mind and not having tunnel vision. Um, it's a cogent picture, isn't it? Pointing that way. It leads that way. Yeah. This is Detective Sergeant Gleeson, who at one point, remember, was in charge of the murder investigation. It leads that way, to the suspicion that Brett was killed over drugs. Did the police investigate that properly? I want to ask you what police did, having regard to all of that information, OK? Now, ordinarily, um, if you had all of that, there are a number of police tools or investigative techniques that can be utilised to try and weed things out and get to the bottom of information, right? Typically, yes. And police used those techniques on David Little, bugging his house and phone, tracking his car, calling him in for an interview, and ultimately running a Mr Big sting on him. But what about Mr Pike and his crew? Police talked to them, but they wouldn't come to the police station. Police didn't bug their phones or their houses. The investigation team didn't interview the Hamilton guy who knew about Brett's buried drugs and said Mr Pike had him killed over the big debt. They didn't ask Mr Pike about that or about the letter he wrote which talked about the big debt to Brett. 
they didn't even ask Mr Trevally about his reported confession. In fact, police at the trial didn't even seem to know about it. They didn't question Mr Marlin about his spouting off that he was the offender. They didn't properly question Jesse the Hunter about what he'd seen. Then there were all those times the police failed to turn over evidence to the defence. For the defence, all this adds up to tunnel vision. That's where police fixate on one suspect and overlook or fail to check out evidence that points in other directions. Anyway, the defence say the police were so sure that David Little did it that they didn't appreciate the significance of this drug-killing evidence or chase it down or record it properly or hand it over. And the jury's entitled to guess that there might be more. So the defence asks Detective Sergeant Gleeson, might there be more evidence of a drug-killing that police didn't turn over? So what you're saying is there's a possibility that we still haven't disclosed more material. That's your opinion? I'm not necessarily going to agree with that. I would like to think there's some confidence in the fact that after the audit, those issues have been resolved. So I would say no. The defence asked Detective Inspector Kirby the same question. Well, I suggest to you that given what has happened in this case, it's obvious there is more information outstanding that hasn't been disclosed, right? And that it's likely to be of a similar nature to that which is already known, namely Mr Hall was killed by drug associates. Is that? No. If you've been following the series, you might be able to guess the next question. You're probably expecting Christopher Stevenson to say, didn't a High Court judge disagree with you? Didn't Justice Simon France, who presided over this case for years and who'd seen all the evidence of the failed disclosures, look at this question and answer, yes, yes, there probably was more evidence that the police hadn't turned over, and yes, it probably did point to a drug killing? But Christopher Stevenson didn't ask that question, because the Crown objected to it. The judge listened to arguments about it while the jury was out and ended up agreeing that the question could not be asked. Why not? Because what Justice France concluded was just a judge's opinion. It's not evidence by itself. Oh, maybe it didn't make much difference. The jury was told all about the disclosure problems. They had enough information to make up their own minds. Still, just imagine what the defence would have said to the jury. A high court judge said you probably haven't got all the relevant evidence. Who do you believe, that judge or the police who repeatedly broke the disclosure rules? You don't know what more there might be, how important it might be. You have to imagine there's more and that it points to Brett being killed in a drug deal. That's what the judge said. Doesn't it create doubt in your mind, all by itself? So the defence seemed to be telling a powerful story about how Brett probably died. That is always seems to be the case in this trial. There's another way of telling that story. The Crown says the closer you look at this picture of a drug deal gone wrong, the more it starts to fall apart. The informant who said Mr Trevally confessed, that informant might have had a motive to lie. Detective Sergeant Gleeson explained he was looking for bail. He's basically asking for a favour, for the information, a benefit. That's a little bell you'd be ringing. Um, this person's got something to gain by giving us that information. You'd want to have a closer look at it. Did that informant make up Mr Trevally's confession? But what about the guy in Hamilton who told the police he'd heard Mr Pike organised for Brett to be killed over a drug debt? He was a bit 
kooky. He'd hired a vehicle, stopped at BP Cambridge. He believed someone entered his vehicle while he was in BP because he found two hairs on the headrest of the front passenger seat and said they were not there before. It's great. He believed he was being followed by gang members and that a car outside the police station, which as it happened was one of the police's own cars, was videoing him. And the source of his information about Brett's killing was a bit vague. He said he'd heard a lot of these rumours from town. That's right. Also, he said he got a lot of information from his father, and the police did talk to him. What's more, the guy he fingered for the killing was also in jail at the time. Besides, Detective Sergeant Gleeson said the Hamilton guy's information came in very late, about three years after Brett's disappearance, and by then the Mr Big Sting was nearly finished. Once Mr Little confessed, there wasn't much point in chasing down any other leads. Crown said there was no tunnel vision. Police spoke to Mr Pike ten times in the first three weeks, got a search warrant for his house. In fact, they spoke to more than 100 people and got 38 search warrants or orders for data, including on the phones of Mr Pike, Mr Marlin, Mr Trevelli and Mr Perch. And that phone data showed that Mr Pike and Mr Perch, or at least their SIM cards, were nowhere near Pitangi when things turned ugly on Saturday night to around Sunday lunchtime. Mr Perch was an hour and a half away in Palmerston North. Mr Pike was in Martin and Fielding, still an hour away. Mr Marlin was in Bulls in Palmerston North and then in jail from Sunday to Monday morning. If there was a drug deal, it was a long way from Pitangi and before David says he saw Brett alive on Sunday morning. And if some drug dealer had come up the track to take Brett away, it's likely John Thurlow would have seen him. He was there fixing the track when David left. Meanwhile, David Little's statements to the police seemed filled with inconsistencies. Detective Sergeant Gleeson said that felt like the real trail. You follow the evidence. What about those utes up at Pitangi? Well, maybe they were getting firewood. Or maybe they were trying to do a cannabis deal with Brett. But by then, maybe he was already dead. Is this whole drug-killing theory just a story stitched together from bits of evidence that don't really join up? There are definitely holes in the drug-killing story. All we get are bleak bits of evidence here and there, some inconsistent, some not very clear, some not very reliable, or it's hard to tell. Was there one drug deal or two? Was it meth or cannabis? Mr Salmon or Mr Perch? If Brett was killed, was it on Saturday or Sunday or Monday? Was it at Pitangi or did someone drive Brett somewhere else? Did it involve those utes that were seen at Pitangi on Sunday? Still, there's a lot of noise. Was that Brett getting killed? You can tell a plausible story that these are the traces of evidence that might be left behind when someone is killed in a drug deal. Is that reasonable doubt? Laying up the evidence so far, I think it is. Especially when you throw in Tracy Morehouse's evidence about the cry for help and the unexplained four chairs left out in the campsite. There's also the police searches of David. There was no DNA or blood from Brett on his clothes or in his Nissan Turano, which didn't seem to have been washed. What's more, there was a blood smear from an unidentified man on Brett's car. And if you're still mulling this over, Listen to this evidence from a former manager of the police photographic unit. He's now a security consultant, and the defence got him to examine those CCTV pictures of Mr Little's Tirano SUV when it was heading through balls after that mystery two-hour gap. Here's what he found. And through the rear window of the vehicle, there are two white objects visible, one on the left and one on the right, with a gap between the two 
objects. The Crown suggested that maybe it's a reflection. They are not reflections. That's, um, your, that's your view? Well, I've, I've re-looked at the 40 images um, of a moving vehicle and a reflection in glass would alter as the vehicle progressed through the image. The um, two objects in the back of the vehicle, there is no change. He also says he can't see anything in the back seat. If they're not reflections, what are they? They're blurry, white, maybe boxy. Could they be David Little's fishing chilli bins? He didn't really talk about having two of them, but still, they would line up with his fishing story. And it raises questions about whether there was really room for Brett's body in there too, covered with firewood, which is the Crown's case, based on what David Little told Mr Big. It's more doubt. If you think there's at least a reasonable doubt on the evidence so far, then you're not alone. The Crown does too. In 2011, they hadn't seen everything that would come out at the trial eight years later, but they knew there wasn't enough evidence to prosecute David Little. That's why they ran the Mr Big Sting, hoping to get better evidence. And actually, it's only in situations when there's reasonable doubt that police need to run a Mr Big Sting. And what that means for us, here, is that it really matters what David Little said in the Mr Big Sting and afterward, and what the jury make of that, because it's the difference between guilty and not guilty. In the next episode, we'll look at Mr Little's confessions as a result of the Mr Big Sting. Are they enough to extinguish the doubts that we're left with when we look at the rest of the evidence? Mr Little Meets Mr Big is an RNZ production, written and presented by me, Stephen Price, with support from Victoria University of Wellington and the Michael and Suzanne Boren Foundation. Justin Gregory and Katie Gossett are the executive producers. Tim Watkin is the executive producer of podcasts and series for RNZ. Thanks to sound engineers Blair Stagpool, Phil Benge, Mark Chesterman, Rangi Powick and William Saunders. Jeremy Ansell and Steve Burridge are the Auckland and Wellington operations team leaders. Music composed and performed by Ebony Lamb and Graham Antler. Images by Ebony Lamb. Artwork and design by Jared Bishop and RNZ. You can listen and follow all RNZ podcasts at Apple, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.